Hello, this is Key Ideas, and I'm your host, Leela Viss. This podcast contemplates the rhythm of life as a piano teacher and music maker. Through illuminating interviews and transparent reflections, you'll feel validated, encouraged, and empowered. This is episode 55. As the coordinator of the piano preparatory program at the University of Denver for three years, I realized that I had taken for granted the intuition that comes with being a longtime teacher and a mom of three. What came naturally to me now had not been systematically codified into a vocabulary to use back when I first interacted with the humans sitting on the bench. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know if my intuition is always the best source for advising others. I learned through experience and had little access to the parenting sites and books that are available to us now. As I watched rookie teachers interact with students while I was at the university, it became clear to me that some coaching would be necessary. It seemed that they could benefit from tips on how to shoot the breeze with students and how to coax learners to play a highly respected instrument with an intimidating amount of keys and expectations. So what follows is advice collected from various experts and reduced to a short list of suggestions that I began to formulate a while back. This is by no means a comprehensive list. It is simply my attempt to share insightful tips that encourage effective exchanges between teacher and student. I've taken the liberty to tweak it some for piano teachers. As I move through the list that just scrapes the surface of this topic, I'll make sure to let you know of each resource if you want to dive deeper. On a side note, I just stumbled upon this document that I started back in 2019 in my Google Drive. It was erased from my memory. I had forgotten that I had compiled the list because it was just prior to our son's horrific accident that took his arm and took away life as I knew it. Beyond the accident, COVID greatly contributed to my lapse in memory of how things used to be. I'm not even sure I shared this list with the people it was intended for, and so today, I share it with you. And I've got one more confession, which is best summarized by this quote from Nan Fairbrother. Most of us are experts at solving other people's problems but we generally solve them in terms of our own, and the advice we give is seldom for other people, but for ourselves. So there you have it. I'm recording this podcast to learn from it myself, and I hope you find it beneficial too. I begin with a golden nugget about what we need to consider before every lesson. The nugget is taken from an article by Brene Brown called What Toni Morrison Taught Me About Parenting. The child you are teaching is just that, a child, a pianist, a person, not a bad practicer, not a liar, not a bad person. The child is a good person who makes choices, and some will be bad choices. Speak to the person first and foremost, and don't base your tone or attitude on the actions of the person. And a direct quote from Toni Morrison, let your face speak what's in your heart. When they walk in your room, let your face say, I'm glad to see you. The second item on the list addresses how to talk when opening a lesson and comes from my own experience. Asking how much a student practices at the beginning of the lesson can open a can of worms. The student may expect you to be disappointed 
and feel guilty and start making excuses that you'd rather not hear. It can easily tank the lesson before it even starts. Instead, ask questions that promote action and generate a place to start and to move forward. What's your favorite piece to play? What would you like to play first? What can you remember without opening a book? I dare you. Will you teach me how to play that piece? Or just start with an off-bench activity, like bouncing a tennis ball in patterns of three and then four. Let students choose what comes next in a lesson. Would you like to play this piece or this piece first in your lesson book? Which five-finger pattern do you want to play first? Which hand should I play while you play the other? If you're teaching in a group lesson, you may not have flexibility in the order of events in a lesson, but you can post a checklist of what needs to be accomplished, and students can choose what to accomplish first as a team. To sum it up, avoid putting your student on the practice judgment stand. Instead, let them perceive that they have a say in the direction of the lesson. They'll remain more engaged, and the lesson will be much more productive. Speaking of practice, How do we approach students who don't practice or practice as much as we prefer? These next suggestions are taken and modified for piano teaching from an article by Michael Linson of smartmusicclassroommanagement.com. The article is called Students Who Don't Do Any Work. As Linson states, in most cases, you know that students are able to do the work it takes between lessons to make progress. So the best thing you can do for every student you teach is to expect hard work. According to Linson, the word expect has been tremendously watered down in the world of education. He sees the true meaning of the word expect is to foresee, presuppose, and believe in strongly. Here are three recommendations that Linson provides to get reluctant students to start producing real work, real practice and start making real improvements and progress. Number one, teach great lessons. This is your number one job and the very essence of being a teacher. You must produce clear, compelling lessons that students want to pay attention to. Your teaching skills must be strong enough to capture their attention. Pass along your knowledge with passion, humor, and creativity. This will draw students in, absorb them in the moment, and maintain their state of flow. Strive to make lessons a place where time slows, the mind focuses, and concerns and worries of the past and future fade away. You must set your students up for success by checking thoroughly for understanding. In this way, before you send them off to work independently and practice at home, they know exactly what to do and how to do it. Following Linson's train of thought, here's a challenge for you. Plan at least three ways to explain or demonstrate a concept to ensure comprehension. Look through your games and tools that invite students to experience concepts off the bench and with their bodies too. Begin by modeling first and then explain. In a nutshell, talk less, play more. Lennon's second recommendation comes down to three short words, let them be. This comes from his frame of mind as a classroom teacher, but I include his advice here because his insight could help us as we sit beside our piano students. According to Lennon, once you, the teacher, have done your job, once you've provided students everything they need to succeed, you must shift the responsibility to actually do the work over to them. Students need to know and be reminded at each lesson 
that it's all up to them to take what they've learned and apply it. It's all about their efforts between lessons. This sends the message more than anything else that you trust that students can really do it and that you believe in them and expect them to succeed. Lennon advises teachers not to placate students or let them off the hook. Letting them rely on excuses for not practicing can delay a critical choice on your student's part. They can either do the work or if they choose not to do the work, they may no longer believe in themselves or their abilities. He goes on, forcing their hand is the change agent they desperately need to upend their downward trajectory. When the decision to either succeed or fail comes so directly and honestly every day, the pressure to make the right one, the right decision, builds and grows stronger and harder to avoid. So how can we as piano teachers apply this tough love advice since we don't have the luxury of time to sit and wait for students to start practicing when we've got a wait list? I suggest that we don't give up on them just yet. Instead, demonstrate practice strategies within the lesson and practice with the student in the lesson. Let them experience a win at the lesson. Then prompt them to make a plan on how they will keep this up at home. Another way to jumpstart students' reluctance to practice at home is to offer off-bench time before or after a lesson. During this time, assign students to practice with headphones before or after their lesson so they practice practicing. This way, they'll get the hard work out of the way and home practice can be more of a review than the grueling eat the frog work. Look for a link in the show notes to learn more about eating the frog. Another piece of advice from Lennon. Praise the work, not the student. Instead of rushing over with a huge smile and telling the student how wonderful they are because they played one measure correctly, which very effectively lowers the bar of expectation, point out their good work. Focus on the content of their production, wherein lies the key to an untapped yet very powerful sense of pride. Just be sure that your praise is true, quick, and subtle. Lennon explains that teachers who confuse their level of enthusiasm when praising students will have a more difficult time influencing behavior. Often the smallest gestures have the greatest effect. A fist bump, eye contact with a smile, a congratulatory handshake. These brief but genuine moments between a student and teacher can have a powerful impact. The key to offering praise is not the level of enthusiasm you can muster. Rather, it's choosing the right time to offer a meaningful commendation. If your praise is genuine and comes from your heart, it will have the desired effect. So instead of making a big deal over every little success, point to something in particular in your student's work and tell them the truth. Nice, steady beat with no errors. Smart choice on fingering. I like how you shaped that phrase. Wow, that section has improved so much since last time. What practice strategy did you use? Lennon advises one more thing. Tell students like it is and then be on your way. Don't wait for them to respond. Don't stand there and enjoy their reaction to make them feel obligated to show their appreciation. Let them enjoy the feeling of receiving pure acknowledgement of their authentic work. Simply acknowledge their good work and allow the natural pride in a job well done. I'll be right back with more tips that you will not want to miss. 
Hi, teachers. It's Tim here from Top Music. I'm proud to be a supporter of Leela's show and wanted to take a moment to let you know about an amazing community of piano teachers ready to welcome you over at Top Music Pro. Top Music Pro is the global hub for piano teachers looking to connect, learn, grow, and be challenged in both their teaching and studio businesses. Community members save time by accessing hundreds of step-by-step lesson plans, creative teaching frameworks, business guides, online courses, and workshops. We offer training in topics as diverse as piano technique, lead sheets, website building, intermediate repertoire, group teaching, and special needs teaching. We also save you money through our extensive discounts with Music Notes, Sheet Music Plus, Music Room, Office Depot, Tonebase, and many more. And if you like sheet music, all our members get a free book of studio-licensed, beautifully engraved sheet music each and every month. So come and check out the Top Music Pro community free for 14 days on our full access studio plan by heading to topmusicpro.com and using the coupon code TEAMLILA. That's all one word. Don't tell anyone, but there's also a surprise discount waiting for you when you click join now. I can't wait to welcome you inside. The next tips are taken from two books called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslich and How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen by Joanna Faber and Julie King. Now, the authors of both books prescribe that readers read the whole book and don't just skip to the good parts. Well, I'm doing that a little today. But if you're looking for books that will help you find not only a vocabulary, but an emotional mindset for talking with children, look no more. The author's main point is that we can't bypass the most important element in getting kids to listen. There is no shortcut to getting a cooperative kid. We must first acknowledge and deal with feelings. As the authors state, when kids don't feel right, they can't behave right. Instead of bombarding students who are upset or acting out with questions and advice, rethink your reaction. Acknowledge feelings by giving them a name, disappointment, frustration, upset. Instead of lecturing or giving advice, listen with full attention, empathize, and relate to how students may feel. Validate their feelings. To engage students, the authors have compiled example after example. I've narrowed them down to 10 tips and provide examples of how to use them in your studio. The first tip for engagement, you must be playful. Make inanimate objects talk. Turn a boring task into a challenge or game. Use silly voices and accents. Pretend there's a green monster in the piano and they will bite you if you play while I'm talking. Next, offer choices. The authors advise that both choices must be pleasant. Don't turn a choice into a threat. Do you want to play the piece where it's written or down low where lions would play it? Do you want to play the right hand or the left hand while I play the other hand? Do you want to drum the rhythm or clap the rhythm? Third, put students in charge. Make a list of what needs to get done in the lesson and let the students choose what to do first. Ask your student to teach you how to play a piece or show you how to use a correct hand position. Leave things to chance. Spin a wheel or throw dice to determine how many times a piece is to be played at home. Fourth, give students information instead of correction. Instead of saying, stop pushing into the keys, explain how the piano works and that the key can only go down so far, so there's no need to push hard. Just lower the key with a firm finger. Or, half notes last for two beats. Will you play the drum and let me know if I'm holding my half notes for two beats? Fifth, say it with a word or a gesture. Instead of saying, stop playing while I'm talking, just say, 
hands, and place them on your head. Instead of saying, get your books out and turn to page 10, say books, and then wait until they have their books, and then say, please turn to page 10. To get kids to stop talking, hold your index finger to your lips and wait for students to stop. Sixth, describe what you see. Appreciate progress before describing what's left to do. Wow, I saw firm, rounded fingers when you played that piece. Now let's add a steady beat. Avoid irritating commands or accusations. So instead of saying, get back here and pick up your books, say, I see books on the floor. I get cranky when I see books on the floor. Seventh, describe what you hear by modeling. For example, if their beat is unsteady, you could say, you better count out loud. Instead, play the piece with a steady beat and again without a steady beat. Let students decide which one had the steady beat. Or let students play a steady beat on a drum while you play the piece, then change roles. Number eight, describe how you feel. We are humans and kids need to know when we are feeling frustrated or overwhelmed or disappointed. When you describe how you feel, you are modeling a vocabulary of emotions that they can use when they are frustrated, upset, scared. When expressing anger or frustration, use the word I and avoid the word you. Express strong anger sparingly. It can feel like an attack. Instead of saying something like, you're not listening or you need to listen, say, I don't like it when I have to repeat myself. Or, it's so disappointing when I need to review the classroom rules again. Number nine, write it down. If your assignments are not understood or not being practiced, find a new way to communicate your wishes on sticky notes, with arrows, tabs, color coding. Ask students to dictate and write down notes themselves about what it is that they will be practicing and how it will be practiced before the next lesson. Ten. Take action without insult. If a student won't stop playing while you are talking, close the piano lid. If they are uncooperative during a lesson, say, I can see you are in no mood for a lesson today. I'll wait a while for a bit. It must have been a wild day. Avoid scolding or accusing. Describe your feelings and actions. Stand your ground. Enforce limits and state values. I got to practice what I just preached just last week. I was explaining to a student the checklist that I made for students, parents, and teachers. Head to episode number 51 if you need a refresher. This student is generally an excited and energetic student and a smart musician. But at his last lesson, he became disrespectful, and it took me completely by surprise. I kept my wits about me and remained calm. On the outside, I appeared emotionally unaffected by it. I said, let's pause and see if you're ready for a lesson in a few minutes. He tried to play the piano, but I asked him not to, and so he sat while I put things away, cleaned keyboards, and checked emails. About five minutes later, I sat across from him and asked what had gotten him so upset. It turned out that he did not like the checklist I shared with him. He didn't want his mom to be involved with his practice. I understood his need to be independent. Once I explained why I shared the checklist and then I shared them with everyone, he calmed down and in his words, he said, I'm sorry I made a fuss. Then we moved on with the lesson. Whew, I was relieved. Stepping away and not letting my emotions get the best of me kept the lesson afloat. 
asking what triggered his disrespect was the key to getting to the bottom of the problem. By spending a little time away from each other, we both regulated our emotions. We reevaluated the situation and reengaged in a conversation that allowed us to continue with a pleasant and productive lesson. Now come suggestions to show our praise and appreciation. Consider asking questions or starting a conversation instead of praising. Sometimes acknowledging feelings can be more helpful than praise. If a student doesn't play well at a recital and is upset, it's better to recognize that what he did was hard and understand that this can make him unhappy. It's okay to be disappointed. Validate the feelings. Give a child a new picture of himself. After introducing a challenging piece, say, I imagine you playing this piece for a recital in January. Resist the urge to praise by comparison to peers or siblings. Here are four things to describe when we want to give praise. Number one, describe what you see and hear. I saw excellent posture as you shaped each phrase. Number two, describe the effect on others. The audience loved your huge smile after your sparkling performance. Number three, describe the effort. Instead of saying, wow, you are so talented, say, wow, I can tell you practice extremely hard and your performance showed it. I can tell you really used your practice strategies at home to build more confidence in this section. Number four, describe the progress. You play that entire piece from memory this week already? Line one sounded so confident. Can you make line two sound just as confident? What will you need to do to get it there? That first section makes me want to dance with your crispy staccatos. I can imagine a frog jumping across the keys. Now the second line seems tricky. What makes it harder? Let's work on that next. The next few suggestions are geared towards how to talk with kids who are wired differently. The world may feel wrong to kids who learn differently. It may be too loud, too quiet, and they don't like being pulled out of their world. This means you may need to join them in their world, maybe under the piano, with stuffed animals, with Legos, with buckets and sticks, whatever it takes to engage them and entice them to stick with you at the piano. This means you need to take time to imagine what the student is experiencing. Perhaps the bench feels strange. It's hard being away from mom. The lights are too bright. It may smell differently than their home, and 88 keys are pretty intimidating. It may feel out of the ordinary for students. So be prepared to accept and acknowledge these sensations and name them. Here are four tips to consider. Number one, make sure to adjust your expectations and manage the environment instead of the child. Here are some things that don't work. Commands. You need to sit straight and stop talking. Shaming. You're too old to be squirming like that. Denial of feelings. This is fun. No more complaining. Lectures. Like I said before, the only way to make progress is to practice. Questions. Why did you do that and not what I asked you to do? Threats. I'm counting to three. If things don't change, we're done. Use alternatives to the spoken word. Notes. On sticky notes, use tabs and color coding. Checklists. Make a list of what needs to be completed at the lesson. Pictures. Use them to describe the sound of something or a feeling. 
Songs. Create a song for finding hand positions or pitch names or finger numbers. Gestures. Wiggle your fingers over the two black keys. And number three, for students who are not following your expectations, tell them what they can do instead of what they can't do. You may sit on the floor with your legs crossed. Play one key at a time. Play with rounded fingers like you are holding a bubble. As I mentioned, I barely scraped the surface of both of these books. I think my favorite part about each book is the situations featured in a cartoon setting where it's made very clear what to say and what not to say. Both books are definitely worth your time and money, and they are linked in the show notes. All right, one more resource. And then I'll... rush to fix a problem, step back and try to frame the issue. Ask yourself, what is the biggest problem here? Getting the rhythm wrong or the student not understanding the notation? What assumptions is the student making about the rhythm? What assumptions am I making about their understanding? Hirsch advises that it's helpful to buffer your response with a wait time a self-imposed quiet period to consider what your students are saying or playing. Hold yourself to a few moments of silence before speaking. By shifting from a reflexive to reflective approach, you'll not only give your students more space to share what they know, but you'll get a fuller understanding of what they don't know. And now what? Hold yourself to a few moments of silence before speaking. By shifting from a reflexive to reflective approach, you'll not only give your students more space to share what they know, but you'll get a fuller understanding of what they don't know and what you need to do about it. Number three, listen for the silent signals. Body language and other nonverbal cues reveal our true feelings, the silent signals that are left unspoken. As teachers, we can be good listeners and collect additional insights simply by watching our students' bodies. Are they quiet without a smile, slumped with closed posture? Do they have difficulty finding the right finger? Is there lack of eye contact? Is there evidence of tears from the car ride to lessons? Hirsch says for leaders, and I'll substitute the word teachers, paying attention pays off. He says, leading is listening. If you want to increase your leadership presence, 
demonstrate greater empathy and show people they matter. Then take stock of how you're seeking and receiving information from others. You might just be surprised by what you hear. That's a very brief rundown of what to say and how to say things in a lesson. It's incredibly important for us to dismiss the power of normal or the typical. Is there really a normal student? As you may recall, each human is as unique as the snowflakes that fall from the sky. I recently saw this on a coffee cup. Parenting is like folding fitted sheets. No one knows how to do it. (laughs) I believe that teaching is a lot like folding fitted sheets. No one knows exactly how to do it, but we keep trying our best. The links to the books, posts, and the past episodes I mentioned are in the show notes. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And it would mean the world to me if you share this episode with your teacher friends or those teachers who you may be mentoring right now. Here's a reminder of the opening quote from Toni Morrison as you teach your next lesson. Let your face speak what's in your heart. When a student walks in your room, let your face say, I'm glad to see you. With all of this talk about communicating and finding the right words, I leave you with one more favorite quote from a dear friend. Use words when you have to. This is Key Ideas, and I'm Leela Viss. See you in the trenches.